Well, you can talk about films with a philosopher's zeal, or measure them all by box office appeal. But for once in your life, be real. Welcome, one and all, to Be Real. Guys, my name is Chance Solon Pfeiffer. With me, as always, Noah Ballard. Noah, how are you? I'm good. Uh, perpetually bringing up the uh, shotgun seats of our own perpetual friendship road trip. We are here to talk about three American road trip comedies today. We always review movies, a trio of movies of a similar genre. And that's the genre today, since it is sort of the sort of the dog days of summer for right. a lot of people. In fact, our own Noah is on vacation right now, are you not? I am. I'm uh, coming to you taped from Barnegat Light on Long Beach Islands on the Jersey Shore. Well, before we get into these movies today, I brought in a guest to talk about the specific Americanness of this genre as well as the precedent set by an all-time classic American road trip comedy. He is a writer and you are going to hear me talk to him right now. Well, today I'm very pleased to welcome a writer to the podcast. His work has appeared in the New York Times, the Village Voice, the LA Times, and many more. He's the author of uh, a pair of books on film and television. The most recent is called Sitcom, and the one that we'll be referencing uh, today a lot is Another Fine Mess, uh, a history of American film comedy. Uh, Thanks for doing the show, Saul Austerlitz. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I wanted to start with what could be sort sort of a superficial question, but it just relates to the road trip genre films and the title of your book. I wonder, Another Fine Mess seems to conjure this recurring tried and true comedy trope. Well, like, we're really in it now. Like, we've, we've really done it this time. Is The Open Road a good place to set a comedy film simply just because of what could go wrong? Yeah, I think that is an interesting question. I think that the open road is very appealing to filmmakers and to storytellers in general because, uh, well, maybe for two reasons. One of them is that I think it's one of the oldest storytelling tropes that exist. Sure. I can't who said it, but uh, someone once said that there are only two stories, one of which is a stranger comes to town and the other one is uh, someone leaves their home. So given that, it it sort of makes sense. And, And I think that... The advantage of the road trip story is that it allows storytellers to mingle together uh, a whole bunch of disparate characters or themes or plot lines and have them all be threaded together by virtue of this uh, traveling narrative. So in a way, it's like uh, an effective way to, to make a story out of a collection of shorter stories. Does it work particularly well in comedy because of the uh, potential in this sort of episodic way to run into crazy and different and totally unlike characters? 
Yeah, I think it's probably easier to amuse people by virtue of the oddities of life on the road than to, um, you know, move them or, or create a sort of emotional experience. I mean, you know, we can think about this in other formats and imagine how you could use a very similar narrative to create, say, a horror film. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, just a, a sort of straightforward emotional character drama would be a little bit harder to pull off, although I can think of some examples that, that do it. You know, a film like Todd Haynes' Carol, mm-hmm. exclusively a road trip film, definitely has a significant section of it that essentially functions that way. So doable, but when you sort of think about the platonic ideal of the road trip film or the road trip story, it's going to be a comedy. And so when I emailed you uh, to ask you about doing this and, and sort of what came to mind, the the first thing you mentioned was Preston Sergis' uh, Sullivan's Travels, the 1941 film, uh, which is not only uh, a great road trip movie, but is was I suppose you found it to be such a valuable comment on the, like, the purpose of comedy that you actually open your book talking about it. Um, and for anyone who doesn't, who's not familiar with uh, that movie, Sullivan's Travels is about... Uh, a comedy film director um, who wants to, who's sort sort of tired of making um, like fluffy populist movies, and he wants to venture out into quote unquote real America and the Great Depression and make some some weighty realism. And so it's it's sort of the film is modeled after the four acts of of Gulliver's Travels. But Saul, why uh, when you were kind enough to respond to my email, did did your mind go? right to Sullivan's Travels when I brought this up. You know, like like what you were saying, uh, you know, Sullivan's Travels is about a guy who's tired of comedy. Comedy is dumb, comedy is shallow. I want this picture to be a commentary on modern conditions, stark realism, the problems that confront the average man. But with a little six. A little, but I don't want to stress it. I want this picture to be a document. I want to hold a mirror up to life. I want this to be a picture of dignity, a true canvas of the suffering of humanity. But with a little six. The road trip aspect of the movie is a series of failures. He goes out and he, you know, he's initially going out in, in totally ridiculous fashion where he's essentially being followed by a whole fleet of uh, studio flacks and journalists and various other people. And he never really escapes uh, the Hollywood milieu. It just travels on the road with him. Right. So in, in the film, he ends up, uh, you know, without giving away too many spoilers, although I guess the movie is 75 years old, so you can (laughs) watch it already. Um, He ends up being imprisoned on a chain gang in the South. He is, you know, tortured and abused, and uh, as a momentary respite from it, he ends up being allowed with his fellow prisoners to attend a local church on a Sunday and watch a short film uh, that they have set out for them. And... um, at that moment, where he's sort of at this lowest point in his life, uh, he suddenly, we see him suddenly understand what it means to laugh and what the value is of laughter, uh, and the way that it can can really um, sort of provide the balm for for wounded souls. And and that really spoke to me. I thought that that was uh, Sturgis essentially creating an entire film to allow for that one moment, to allow for that this really impassioned, yeah. artful uh, defense of comedy as not just uh, empty 
artistic calories, but as something really deep and profound that speaks to people's deepest and, and most necessary needs. Preston Sturgis, I think, gets all of chapter nine of your book, and you, t- and you write uh, about the ways in which he was a groundbreaking comedy auteur, like there were no comedy writer-directors before Sturgis, and uh, how that influenced the way Billy Wilder kind of guarded his writing. Um, do you see, Saul, is part of the brilliance of Sturgis the fact that, that that fourth act of the movie, in what up to this point has been a, a comedy, but like a meta-comedy, but the fourth act is really not that funny at all. Yes, I think very much so. I, you know, I, I'm only going off of my own understanding of the film. I haven't really read anything that speaks to what Sturgis thought he was doing, but it, it feels like a jury-rigged kind of movie in the sense that he began with this idea that the character would end up in this place and have this uh, moment of truth. Uh, and then built the film around getting to that point. Because you're absolutely right. Th- those scenes are not funny at all. Uh, they're definitely serious. I-, I find them to be really kind of um, shattering in a way. Yeah. So, yeah, I-, I think that one of the things that Sturgis does best and-, and that I think he's at his best at in this particular moment is the ability to suddenly uh, and effortlessly pull the rug out from under us and take what we had understood and been convinced was exclusively a comedy and suddenly make it into something very, very different. What about this? Is there anything about this genre that strikes you as distinctly American? Even though we talk about the storytelling form uh, goes back millennia, the world over. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a particularly American ideal that we want to escape civilization and what we maybe come to see, whether in our minds or just in our fantasies, as uh, the sort of constricting embrace of society and get out to where we're free. You know, so in that sense, I think that the road trip film is uh, a sort of updated version of the Western, which is also often about similar themes. Yeah, I was thinking, I mean, my partner on the podcast and I were thinking about doing the trip that Steve Coogan, Rob Brydon movie from, have you, do you know that one? Yes, I absolutely love that movie. It's a great movie, but I was thinking about it in relation to, to these ones and you know, how, how very English it is and how, how little romance they, those two actually have about exploring the countryside at all. I think they stand in a graveyard and they're both like, well, this is disappointing. And then they get back in the car. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um, To me, that's one of the great comedies of the last five or ten years. The film is sort of about how you get out on the open road, you escape your life, and then it turns out that that sucks. Kind of want to crawl back to where you were before. Um, But I I think it's similar in the sense that... uh, So, yeah, there's the whole sense of, you know, meeting the oddball characters along the way. But, you know, in that film in particular, many of the oddball characters we meet are... Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon themselves. As I was going through um, and and reading different chapters of of your book, um, the last one, I think chapter thirty, the last like full chapter, is devoted to, and the chapters I should say are uh, mostly chronological, um, is devoted to Apatow and um, sort of the the genre of these like overgrown frat boy like staving off adulthood 
type comedies. Um, and I think you wrote the book, I think it's getting on like five or six years now. And I sort of wonder as you're observing film now, or maybe uh, you're feeling for the next five years, um, if you were adding a chapter 31 uh, in a few years time, um, who or what do you think might get it? Hmm. That's an interesting question. Yeah, I haven't really thought about it. Um, I don't know. There hasn't really been one major figure that's emerged in comedy in the last couple of years that I would definitively point to and say absolutely them. Mm-hmm. Right now, off the top of my head, I think I would probably pick Melissa McCarthy. Oh. In the node that's connected um, a variety of different interesting comic films that have emerged. What what goes beyond that with Melissa McCarthy is not only is does she obviously show that she's funny, but she also shows that she's really a bankable movie star, um, mm-hmm. which which is not only unusual for women, but is seemingly increasingly unusual for comedians at all. Um, and I'm very curious to see where her career goes from here, whether she's able to keep that streak going, whether she's able to um, potentially take on some more interesting roles. Um, I think she's done some really good work uh, a lot of it has been in the sort of safe middle of comedy. Right. And and so I'm I'm curious to see to what extent she has the desire to push beyond those boundaries. Saul, I, I wanted to, uh, we talked about it uh, just before we started, but I wanted to get a plug in for the, um, the book that you're working on now, if you wouldn't mind sharing. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm just wrapping up work right now on a book on the Rolling Stones concert at Altamont from 1969. Uh, I'm hoping to tell the story of the planning for the concert, the event itself, and its aftermath. There hasn't really been a book that's um, told the entirety of the story, and I've done a lot of fresh interviews with people who were involved in the show or were present at the concert, and um, I'm hoping that people will enjoy it. Undoubtedly. Well, Saul, thank you so much for your time. I I really appreciate uh, the insights from a person who's kind of knows the knows a century of american comedy really well and has written about it um yeah thanks a lot for the time oh thanks so much for having me so noah where does our journey start in the genre i think we should begin our journey as all good road trips uh begin at the uh beginning of the trip so i thought chronologically made the most sense here there you go so big thanks to saul and let's jump ahead from 1941 all the way to 1983 uh with national lampoon's vacation and god what a time it was to be alive chance 1983 where you know racial segregation is but a punchline in a film and uh you can kids are you noticing all this plight (laughs) <laughs> and uh atari or pac-man can eat your gps yeah anthony michael hall and dana Barron are the kids uh harold ramus directed john hughes wrote the screenplay as he well sure as did a short story that uh that it's based on i kind of want to read that short story i would like to know as well um I, it's called vacation 58 but i wonder if it's got that good uh that good Eisenhower to Reagan 50s to 80s suburban come around on it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but it certainly doesn't have a Lindsay Buckingham score. Oh, no. No, it does not. 
What a song that is. What a lot of coke someone has to be on to write a song with that tempo. <laughs> Holiday Road. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's so... And the lyrics are, like, either very deep or just nonsense. Oh, I, I think they're nonsense. Okay, good. So the Griswolds, uh, Chicago family, your all-American Chicago family from Middle America are uh, going on a road trip to the Wally World a music p- amusement park in California, uh, something that all four members of the family are, are really looking forward to. They talk about flying, but because Clark, the patriarch, wants to bond with the family because his kids because kids are like 12 13 they're growing up he wants to sort of experience the twilight of their childhood he insists that they go on the cross-country road trip and the movie opens uh with them trying to get a new car for it and eugene levy uh the car salesman sort of tricks them into um just getting a really ugly uh green looking station wagon I don't know what must have happened. It didn't come in. Ed, I'm not your ordinary everyday fool, okay? Now, I'd like my Antarctic Blue Super Sports Wagon right now, and if you can't get it for me, I'm going to take my business elsewhere. Clark Griswold is sort of um, like an everyman, I would say. Well, I agree, um, but he's like a farcical everyman. Um, right. He says his scene, his well, I think one of his first lines of the movie, his first sort of self-identifying line to Eugene Levy is, I'm not your average everyday fool, which is <laughs> which is basically what Clark Griswold tries to maintain through four films, which make clear that not only is he that fool, I mean, he might be quite more than average right. in terms well, of I stupidity. Think that, I think that that's sort of the, the cruel irony of the series, is that he's yes. not your average fool. He is just like the epitome of a fool. <laughs> And these movies are all based on cruel irony, and you kind of get to see where it started. This is, right. this is, you have the meeting of crazy characters that these road trip, uh, that these comedic odysseys make so possible. But it's mostly Clark uh, and company being punished for his his confidence, his hubris, his right, <laughs> his automotive hubris, <laughs> right. Um, yeah, but I think it's funny, and what makes him an interesting character is that, like, deep down you can understand, like, what he's going for, right? Yes, well, you only kind of see what he's going for, but go ahead. Well, that's the thing, and I think that's why John Hughes is so smart and why this is quintessentially a John Hughes movie is because, like, and even, this is better portrayed in Christmas Vacation, but the fact that, like, this is a guy raised in the 50s, currently living in the 80s, trying to recreate, like, what the 50s was, Right. Yeah, for him. Where if you just, like, you know, look somebody in the eye and talk straight to them, they're not going to fuck with you. But, like, this is the 80s, and they definitely are. Right. And, you know, like, if you go to... Like, there is some charm still left in, like, these tourist traps. Like, well, there's not. This is the 80s. Like, they're just trying to make money on you. And it's just sort of a funny... But you get what he's trying to do. He's trying to be that 1950s, like, cleaver father archetype. Yes. And just failing because he is, you know, out of his element in like the wrong time. Yeah. I think this is what you made a really strong case when we talked about Christmas Vacation, too. Like, these are movies that the Clark Griswold character for me is someone who exists sort of only on that figurative level. And the problem I have and the reason I like don't enjoy watching him is that Chevy Chase's 
performance has like no real humanity to it like when he talks to it's all an act and that's the point is that like he's always sort of willing himself honey kids into (laughs) being the like being the father that he wants to be because the alternative to that is i guess disaster for him but that's why i think it's sort of it's a good farce but it only works on the level of a farce see what i think is so funny about it is that not only is he playing this role of, like, the honey kids, like, he's also deep down, and what I think makes these movies actually funny, is that, like, dude's a scumbag. Oh, yeah. Like, dude, like, does not have, like, yes, he has principles, but he doesn't have morals. The only moment of the movie where I feel like Chevy Chase thinks he's, like, exacting realism is the scene where he is lying to Christy Brinkley about not having a family or a wife. <laughs> Like everything else is just him putting on what he thinks a father and husband is. Yeah, it's so interesting how at least Ramus, if not Hughes, like they have empathy for the archetype because they see they're probably their own fathers in it, but they yes. have no empathy for like Chevy Chase's actual character. Nor does Chevy Chase's performance right. really ask for it. Yeah, you're totally right. Right. Like, of course he gets caught doing bad things because he's, like, a schmuck and a fool. But, like, he still did a lot of, like, really shitty things. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> oh, absolutely. man. When he's just, like, ca- I just love the moment where he just, like, casually brings up to his wife. And you see him try to, like, negotiate or giving him a roadhead. <laughs> oh, Yeah. and then like she gets stuck and like she gets pissed at him and like the kids see and it's like oh that sucks that like he got caught but like he still did it yeah he still wanted to do it with the kids in the back seat right because of a memory he had from college right it's all yeah it's but his psychology is like all deeply rooted in this like weird nostalgia if you like look at what's causing him to move forward and he's also like a really heinous like class snob yeah. You know what? Same year, Clark Griswold is like the person that all the people from the Big Chill hated in college and still feared becoming, and then they kind of became him. Exactly. I, that's a really good reference. But yeah, he's like a total like sellout. He's like very cheap. And like he like looks down on like, you know, black people and like his poor relatives on the other side of his family. Uh Yeah. And then, like, just the way he handles, like, service people, they're either, like, sexual objects or just, like, people at his disposal. But, yeah, this movie, like, really plays by an interesting set of rules. Because it's not essentially a family film. I mean, and it knows that. So, like, there's even the weird, unnecessary, like, topless scene with Beverly D'Angelo. Yeah, yeah. And then, like, Eddie just, like, breaking down about 30 seconds into you meeting him and going, Fuck. (laughs) (laughs) It is it is like a hard R, isn't it? For but it's, like, it's PG. For what it was it rated PG thirteen, or it, yeah, it was R. Was it yeah. R back then or PG thirteen? It, it was R. Interesting, because the Christmas Vacation, I think, is mounted more as a like a holiday, like family film, like a dark yeah. one. But I think it's a PG. Where do we land on this? Well, it's weird because it's such a it's a, a very dated film. A yeah. and B, it's also dated in like just the kind of like cinema that is made now like with comedic presences Mm -hmm. so like you have basically these like medium shots where they like set up a sight gag and there's not a lot of like camera work in this would you would you go on that limb with me 
Yes, of course. Like when the dog bites him, you have to right. rely on the quick, like upward camera shot to just Chevy Chase reacting. Right. There's not a lot of like production value here, but still, I thought that it was like it held up, and so I'm. I think I'm going to land on good, good because it's certainly entertaining. Yeah, I'm going to say. So I think I I liked the simplicity and the cause and effect in this movie more than I liked it in Christmas. Because my big problem with Christmas Vacation, um, even for the the fine, the great socio-political read you had on it, was just that I didn't understand how the money for the pool caused him to go insane. It just did not seem like a big deal. This one, I like the archetype feels stronger to me. Like, dad wants to bond. Dad will do anything Oh, you anything just like to... the premise better of this one? Yeah, dad will do anything to bond. Like, that's all he has left. Which I realize those are similar, but it worked better for me here. It just felt like a stronger A to B. So I think... Like technically, from a narrative level, that yeah, wins I mean, it for it's me. definitely well, it's definitely a clearer sort of trajectory for a movie where it's like yes. dad wants to take his family to essentially what is Disney World's on a family vacation and drive there. But I also Whereas, respect that you're talking about the difference between a first movie and a fourth movie. Sequels right. don't spend a lot of time thinking about that. Right, but then in like Christmas Vacation, you have um, the premise of he wants to have the perfect family Christmas, which is a little bit more nuanced, I would say. Sure, um, but like where I you, said, where you're gonna land? I'm gonna say good bad. I just do. I think good bad. You can tell me it's my problem, and I can take it on as my problem. But I, I so good, do. Bad. I so do not enjoy, as I was saying, the Clark Griswold character. He's just so. He only works on the level of the metaphorical dad. He there's there's nothing like beneath that Chevy Chase performance that like makes me feel. Oh, for God's for it. sake! It's just a fucking movie, right? I know. It's just a dumb National Lampoon movie. Like, you, what are you gonna tell me then? Like an Animal House? Like you didn't see like their passion for learning? Like what? <laughs> But that's not the point of Animal House. They're not punished because they don't have a passion for learning. The point of this movie is that I'm supposed to understand what is happening to this man because of what he attempts to do, but he is only what he attempts to do. There's nothing else, and I don't like watching it. So I'm just saying that I am not a fan of these movies, and I've given Fine. my nod, and we shall. I'm ending it there. Fine, you've given it at least one good. But just for the, the listeners out there, like this is a good, good movie and you should watch it. Yeah, yeah. Shall we move forward to two thousand six's Little Miss Sunshine? Um yeah, I would love to do that. I had not seen this movie since I originally saw it in the theaters the summer of two thousand six. Nice. High so- school? Yeah, in high school. And then my friend Brent pulled this really nasty move where for Christmas he gave me this gift and it was a copy of Little Miss Sunshine. I was like, oh, what a thoughtful gift. And then I realized as I talked to all my friends, he had gotten them all Little Miss Sunshine because he worked at a video game store there and they had DVDs too and they were like clearanced out or something because they had too many (laughs) copies of them. So whereas I thought he'd like really understood my taste in cinema because he remembered how much I liked that movie, instead he was just a bastard. (laughs) I think think that's pretty good work, Brent, if you're listening. Do you want to synopsize this one? Sure. 
Um, so we get a bunch of uh, wacky characters into a house, and I'll go into those in a second. And they find themselves in the situation where they have to come together and all drive from Albuquerque, New Mexico to uh, Redondo Beach, Redondo Beach, California, which is approximately an 800 mile drive. And they have to do it all together to go to the titular Little Miss Sunshine pageant, which is a pageant for young for girls who are six or seven years old. And they compete just as you would in any beauty pageant. And the daughter, who's the youngest character in the film, uh, has gotten a place to compete uh, last minute's notice. Right. So the characters are Greg. It's the the parents are Greg Kinnear and Tony Collette. Greg Kinnear is sort of a self um, self fashioned self help guy. Mm-hmm. Is just sort of life guru and Tony Collette. Uh, what does she do? Is it ever clear? I don't think it is. But she's like sort of the breadwinner while Greg Kinnear like chases his dream. And there's like this weird book deal in play for like maybe him actually finding some legitimacy and that becomes one of the conflicts of the movie. And then we have the kids, which is Tony Collette's son that has been adopted, I guess by Greg Kinnear, which is played by Paul Dano, which is Dwayne. Mm -hmm. And he has not spoken in nine months because he's uh, vigilantly pursuing his dream of being a uh, test pilot, a a test pilot. And he's also a big reader of Nietzsche. Yes. And so, yes, he's not speaking. So he writes in a little pad. Um, Mm -hmm. And the daughter, Olive, who's competing in the Little Miss Sunshine pageant. And then she's being trained by Greg Kinnear's father, her grandfather, played by Alan Arkin. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, I should say Abigail Breslin plays Olive. Um, And Alan Arkin is this heroin-addicted old man who's just been thrown out of his nursing home and back into live with them. And then the final character who sort of guides us through this family unit is Steve Carell playing Tony Collette's brother, who yes. is a Proust scholar who has just been dumped. And after a series of horrible things happened to him, he attempted his own life, um, but unsuccessfully. And so now he's Tony Collette has taken charge of him until he gets his life sorted out. So anyway, they get this phone call that they have to go to Redondo Beach, California, and all hell breaks loose in this small uh, sunburst uh, VW bus. Cheryl, remember when Olive was runner-up in the regional Little Miss Sunshine? Well, the girl who won had to forfeit her crown. I don't know why something about diet pills, but anyway, now she has a place in the state contest in Redondo We're going to California. The thing I think is so interesting about this movie is they kind of decide to go because the collective unit is such a mess that Olive is the only one of them who like wants something that they can get behind. Like her desire to do this is the only pure intention they see in their midst that can create direction. And it's funny that that's true while also... Um, if people have seen this movie, her ultimate performance, they don't even know what she's going to do. They're kind of using her for direction, but they're all so self-absorbed. They don't actually know what Olive's big moment in the spotlight is going to look like. Right. Oh, and it's just so good, too. Oh, it's great. It's It's so good. Um, And not in that, like, 
that's what I love about this movie is that it goes, it could be so bad. Oh, like, easily. This movie could be so maudlin and so like, like saccharine sweet at moments. And it just, just like, it's because it's shot almost like a broad comedy, yes. but it has the beats of like, you know, a Charlie Kaufman movie. Mm-hmm. And it's just teetering on this line. Of... Yeah. But it does such a good job of somehow hitting a sweet spot between like Garden State and August Osage County. And it like misses like the bad parts of both those movies and combines like Sufjan Stevens with some like really wonderful, like finely drawn characters. Right. Yeah, the whole movie is sort of like the weirdness of a Sufjan Stevens song. Yes. Um, but like, you know, with like a Taylor Swift melody. There you go. There you go. Very accessible. Um, I But I just think it's such a feat of acting that they're all in that room and you all sort of know, you know within 15 minutes the ways in which these people are going to be so incompatible. And then they hit the road. Yeah, no, I think it's great too. And I think also, like in this movie was a financial success as well. It's true. It was like a sleeper hit and it was like that movie that, did it win uh, Best Original Score, Original Screenplay? Yeah, Original Screenplay and Supporting Actor. Nice. Yeah, I think that this movie is sort of brilliant because, and it was it won awards and it also did well in the box office. What's so brilliant about it, and this has like become a formula in indie cinema, is... You pick a premise that can be distilled into a two-minute film trailer so people actually fucking want to watch your movie. And then you pick a really hip, independent song that is of that moment and just Mm -hmm. fucking market them as if they are one. And then people can't get it out of their heads and they go to the movies. Same thing happened with um, uh, Ho Hey by the Lumineers and Silver Linings Playbook. Totally. Good call. And there's enough moments in dialogue, too, where, like, the a la mode thing, like, which was, like, so in the trailer. That's such a throwaway in the actual movie that I think it's brilliant. Mm-hmm. It's true. So, like, it didn't, it didn't, the trailer itself, which I went back and watched, uh, doesn't give really away any of the major beats of the movie. Well, I mean, I think you could make an argument that this move that ten years later, that the fundamentals of caring is, like doing an impression of this movie without oh, the cast. Certainly. But yeah, like that movie exists because of this. It has the star power. We'll get to it in a bit. But speaking of a comp to Fundamentals of Caring, I think it's the, one of the cool things about this movie, and I think you can still sort of feel it, is that Steve Carell's acting still feels really sort of novel here. Like one right. of the things I don't, one of the things I think doesn't work about Fundamentals of Caring is that when Paul Rudd is not doing his Paul Rudd thing, he might as well just be a white guy standing in frame trying to look serious. Right. And I think Carell has that unique Well, Carell's thing. always acting. Well, yeah. He has that thing where the spectrum of his light and dark are all distilled into the comedy. I mean, my big problem with Fundamentals of Caring, as we get to it, um, is that they don't give the actors enough to do. And with Steve Carell's character, they, like, give him that scene in the gas station. They give him that, like, running moment, like, in the hotel. Like, they give him big, physical, and quieter things, but, like, drawn-out quieter things for him to do. Whereas, like, Paul Rudd's 
two moments really are like, I'm an authority figure in front of this kid and I'm not signing divorce papers. Like those are his two sort of things. Yeah. But I think it's so funny too, because, and compared to now vacation, like Greg Kinnear is in the same like school of thought as Clark Griswold, right? Baby, Stan Grossman is going to (laughs) call Like, honey, Stan Grossman and I uh, were talking the other day, and he said it's a go. Yeah, just a little less blush as the 25 years have gone by, but same thing. Yeah, but it's interesting that, like, that sort of archetype is on trial in this movie. But again, it's like a very similar film as, like, a bunch of weirdos get in a car, and then, like, shit goes really badly. Yeah. You know, it's not natural. I know the naturalism is created, but just a very simple thing on a road trip of what happens when six people get out of a car at a gas station and what it's like to round them all back up gradually or what it's like to say goodnight for the first time when you've like landed at that first motel that's kind of bad and everyone's exhausted. Like in in terms of sheer road trip representation, this movie is also great. Well, that was what I was going to ask is like the overarching question about this one is like how adequately does it describe or show what it is like to be on an actual road trip. And I think with this one, like, I feel like some of the road trips I've been on, sure, have been for pleasure, but there's always, like, some underlying, like, reason why it sucks, right? Totally, yeah. And I Even feel if like it's this as simple one, as can't find a place to rest your head, which they show. For that and not, and for, like, many other reasons, too, I would have to say that this is a good, good movie. I'm right there with you. Yeah, I mean, just the the tricks it's able to pull off. Like, one of the characters not speaking until, like, the last 25% of the movie. Right. And yet he's still, like, such a huge character. Yeah. Um, You know, and then working in these, like, pretty great cameos, too. You got Brian Cranston. You got basically the whole cast of Breaking Bad in there. (laughs) You got Dean Norris. You got Dean Norris and uh, Brian Cranston (laughs) and Albuquerque. Yep. They just hang out there (laughs) waiting for parts. Um. Shall we see if the fundamentals of caring can make us care? Um, I certainly endeavored to do that one night last week. All right. Uh, this is the... Uh, I, well, it premiered at at uh, Sundance, but it's a Netflix production starring uh, Paul Rudd and Craig Roberts and Ask, Selena... A.K. Ass Juice. Yeah, what was that reference? In uh, Neighbors, he plays a pledge under Zac Efron, and they, his, like, pledge name is Ass Juice. Oh, okay. But there's this really, like, movies. amazing scene where he, like, really, like, Zac Efron, like, really empowers him and says, like, I really want you to do this. I want you to go after it. Now, like, do it, Ass Juice. And it's just, like, a perfect sort of juxtaposition there. Anyway, continue. Gotcha. Um, well, Craig Roberts, I'm going to keep calling him by his Christian name. <laughs> <laughs> um plays a young man with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Uh, Paul Rudd plays a sad man who looks a lot like Paul Rudd, um, who will not, as Noah said earlier, sign the divorce papers that his wife has given him. He keeps putting that off. He's a a writer, I guess, who's been out of work for three years. Classic white guy profession. Since a tragedy, question mark. But to try to work himself out of this hole this emotional hole in the ground he um tries to take a job as a caretaker and it's not quite clear what the range of jobs he could have are but he basically ends up coming to this house full time um to care for the craig roberts character who who needs help um 
going to the bathroom. He needs breakfast. He need, I mean, he's a shut-in. He he never leaves, but also, you know, he's confined to a, his motorized his Right. Motorized well, he's not car. necessarily confined to the space, but, like, it's easier just to stay there because all of his medical equipment is there. Exactly. For sure. Right. Um, I f- can I just say this before we get into the, the road trip aspect? Uh-huh. Is well, that was like my first sort of like inability to suspend disbelief. Is that like a thing? You like just take a six week course in like caregiving, and then you can become like a caregiver. Like I've never heard of this institution before. The boy's mother, played by uh, '90s Meryl Streep, um, right? You know, she says yes. She signs off on him working there. Yes, after. Uh... He gives him a series of psychological tests, which are uh, maybe offensive, maybe not. Mm, tough to say. Um, um, but then, yeah, and then after talking for a little while, they both realize that Paul Rudd and Ass Juice can like exercise some of their demons <laughs> by going on this road trip to see the world's or the country's largest hole. Yes, it's true. Which uh, again, another question I had is: Is that a thing? It's a good question. It certainly looked real until the filmmaker decided they had to CGI the final shot. Excruciating right. CGI because they couldn't get a helicopter. Right. Well, that was like the weird thing about this movie is like I had it has this like weird feeling of inauthenticity and almost like cheapness to it. Can I say yeah. that? Yeah. Because like they don't do a whole lot. There's not a lot of like there's no effects to speak of. Well, like yeah. both Little Miss Sunshine and like vacation both have like bits they have like moments of like action this movie doesn't right. really have any of those yeah it hits a weird note that is like sort of grading about sort of trying to profit off the feeling of being an indie movie while having a couple big names one of whom is one of the biggest pop stars in the world um but still like not but but also like trying to pull up like a '90s Oscar winning plot. Well, it feels like the movie was written as like a '90s Oscar movie, right? And then yeah, like, like send Netflix, it a woman. right? And then Netflix got their dirty paws on it. Probably <laughs> took out a couple of like darker scenes, uh-huh. and then like shot it with like the biggest names that they could get. And the two were Paul Rudd and Selena Gomez. This tough talking, leather jacket wearing young woman on the road who is oh, yeah. uh, Selena Gomez, who, whose again, character bothered if, me so much. Well, it, that's the, what bothered me about it is because I felt like you could tell that like when they got Selena Gomez on board, they're like, fuck, we need to make her character bigger. Yeah. So they just like wrote more scenes of her doing the same thing. Totally. In, and then they like had her in scenes that maybe she didn't need to be in just because it was Selena Gomez. That's not a real character. That's like a a literary device specifically there to um, inject some very calculated feminism, if that makes sense. Right. Like she's specifically there to uh, like subvert the idea of a vulnerable woman on the road. So every time she talks, it's it's like. What are you guys, a couple of perverts? Like, making fun of, like, what a movie in the 90s would have tried to push on you earnestly. But there's nothing actually to that character. You must be Mr. Benjamin. Hi. Can you tell me about some of your previous clients? Trevor would be my first client. My child has a unique sense of humor. You know anything? Could you call the Make-A-Wish Foundation and tell them I want a blowjob from Katy Perry? 
But what really troubles me about this movie is that unlike every other road trip movie, nothing bad happens. All the bad stuff has happened before the movie began, where he got diagnosed with this debilitating disease, Astros, and where Paul Rudd, spoiler (laughs) alert, goes through this tragedy. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, that was what, on a narrative level, what frustrated me. Like, I get it. If you didn't have that big of a budget and the budget you did have, you blew on the cast. You need to, like, show us characters changing or doing something. Right. Like, the whole point of this 90-minute movie was that Paul Rudd didn't want to sign divorce papers that have been pending for, what, three years? Yeah. And then, like, he does sign them and then smiles at the end, but his world is still horrible. Like, that's not, that's not an arc. I mean, it's so obvious. We talked about the director of Danny Collins, a movie that we loved slash made a lot of fun of back. Right. Uh, hey, back you uh, baby doll. What's going on? Um, the director of Danny Collins loved this movie and tweeted about it. Um, and I love that Bobby Cannavale is in both as a struggling dad. Um, but it has that sort of that just emotional paint by numbers of like one funny, one sad, one funny, one sad, but like it can't even kind of get that right. Um, right. In terms of the larger arc. And what I mean, this movie, what this movie is missing is the proverbial Danny Collins. There is like <laughs> no one who can sort of rocket it above where it needs to go with their stardom because it doesn't let Paul Rudd do anything with his sort of you know always charming personality no one does anything uh any of what Sir Lawrence Olivier would call acting in this film (laughs) the thing I couldn't stand about this movie how explicit it is with its already very obvious character metaphors at one point because of the tragedy Paul Rudd has suffered, he's in an argument with uh, Astros, and Paul Rudd actually <laughs> nice. utters the line, "You think I'm looking for redemption through you?" And it's like, don't don't read like the uh, ninth grade English like commentary on this movie aloud. And I really right. wanted in that. And then questioning it, like you know, sort of disparagingly, when you are nothing better than that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> How dare you say such a thing about my film, even if it's blatantly true. On the other hand, I'm going to give this movie a bad good. Yeah. Are you? Because, like, it's just such a charming... You know what this movie is? And I have sort of a bigger thesis about movies that I want to throw out there and see what you say. Oh, my God. Finally. Do you think the Netflix original movie is the new, like, Hallmark original movie? Could be. A version because thereof. like clearly they threw like what ten million dollars at this thing mm-hmm. to see what would happen, and because it's on Netflix, you can have it be R rated and curse a lot, and like it has a little bit of cachet because of their good television programming. But ultimately, like a TV movie is a TV movie, and it's not about the cinematography. And people realize that they're probably going to watch it on a TV set or a computer, and but for that genre, I thought it was like pretty decent for not trying it was fine and no i don't i don't hate it but like it's just a big w h y like why like what's the point so it's gonna be a bad bad for me interesting i mean it's definitely like the other end of the spectrum of like a sharknado right totally made for like a similar amount of money maybe this one a little bit more but ultimately 
like this one just didn't have the ambition that one could find admirable in Sharknado. Yeah. So in terms of this being like a good road trip movie, what did you think of that one, Chance? Um, I thought the editing and the going up to see the giant cow scene was really funny. Um, that it might have been moments the, of levity. The yeah. most inventive part of the movie was that bit of editing. Right. Well, I have still have to say that like them not having handicap access to the world's largest cow was like the worst thing that happened in this movie, <laughs> which is like not that's a makes for a boring road trip and a boring road trip story. So yeah. I have to say like not really. Hey, thanks to Saul again uh, for his insights. Uh, I really enjoyed that conversation and it, it set us on a good foot to discuss this, uh, the genre and the archetypes at work here. So thanks to Saul. Um, Noah, what else? Hell? <laughs> Nothing else. Um, you can listen to past episodes of this show and find out about us at berealguys.com. Real like a film reel. Listen to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, what have you. Should be everywhere you want it. Yeah, we should make a make an effort to go on a road trip soon. That'd be fun. Maybe. If these movies tell us anything, no, it wouldn't. No, it would be eventful, to say the least. We'd find out something about ourselves. I would love that. All right, I'll friend. definitely sign those divorce papers for you, Chance. Oh, smiles during musical montage. Bye. <laughs> Bye, buddy. Bye.